Uh, this is an interesting start for Matthew. For many of us here, you, you might uh, be thinking, when it comes to genealogies, this is the part of the Bible I skip over, or uh, potentially look for baby names, or something that is just totally a non-devotional part of your life. And uh, I can affirm that and agree for the most part. I mean, you, you think to Matthew, why, why not take a cue from John, who starts off with this wonderful picture of Jesus being the Word of God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. Like, that's a beautiful beginning to a story, right? Or Mark, who gets into his gospel and telling about Jesus, but the kingdom of heaven is near. I mean, that, there's something wonderful about starting a story that way, but with names and a genealogy, is Matthew trying to put his readers to sleep? Well, before we write Matthew off and uh, say, what on earth is he up to here? I think it's important to recognize that Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And for a Jewish person, and maybe this would have some meaning for you today, but a Jewish person would actually uh, understand a genealogy to be like a resume, to be the family tree of someone's life that showed the world your worth. It was your pedigree. It was where you came from. It was, your, it was so closely attached to your identity. For a man who was entering into the priesthood, he was required in showing his genealogy before he would enter in, actually, to the priestly line. Uh, Josephus, if anybody knows of him, uh, a, a great historian, 30 to around 100 AD, uh, often in his writings, in recounting the historical world of, of Jesus and ancient Near East history, would include his genealogy so that people would say, aha, I can believe this guy. There, I can credit uh, him to what he is saying here. And today, what I find interesting actually is that it seems, and maybe this is not for all, but there is a resurgence of interest in ancestry lines. When you think of 23andMe, when you think of people looking back to where did I come from, there's a growing interest. And part of that is I want to propose that we, in some sense, are in a rootless culture. We're into novelty, we're into something that is new. But people want to know where you came from or where they came from. Am I more than where I work? Am I more than where I live? Maybe my family tree will help me discover who I truly am. And so here, right in the introduction, before we get into it, Matthew is on a journey to share about a real Jesus in real life history and how all of the Old Testament, all of the history of the Old Testament is culminating in this king, is culminating in the person of Jesus. And the Jewish listener in my prayer this morning is that to us as well, we'd be fascinated by that. We would be in awe to see that all of history is actually centralized and centered around this man, Jesus Christ. He also is coming out of the gate saying this, and I don't want us to miss this this morning. He starts off at the very beginning saying, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so many commentators, most of what I read, believe that what Matthew is doing here is that he's actually creating this, this illusion that when you look back into the Old Testament in Genesis 5, when it's written that this is the book of the genealogy of Adam, that there's a new king, that there is a new age that is beginning here. And Matthew is starting off with this new king. And he's saying that though sin had come through Adam, this time the arrival of Jesus Christ would mark the dawn of a new age, one of ultimate redemption for a bruised and broken creation. That this dawn, that the arrival of this king 
would bring forth an ultimate redemption. And so I want to ask this question this morning, if you could stay with me. What does the dawn of this new age point towards? The arrival of this king who came through this this royal line, what does this dawn of the new age point towards? What are lessons that we can learn this morning? There's three primarily, though there's probably many more uh, that you could be thinking about, but there's three that I want to spend our time with this morning. And the first is this. We learn of a kingdom that cannot be thwarted. A kingdom that cannot be thwarted. Secondly, we learn of a king that identifies with our brokenness. And lastly, we see a king through whom the whole world will be blessed. And so as we think about this genealogy, and as maybe you're thinking, man, I am confused. What on earth is he going to pull out of this this morning? Those are the three points. A kingdom that cannot be thwarted, a king who identifies with our brokenness, and a king through whom the whole world will be blessed. Let's start with the first point, a kingdom that cannot be thwarted. I was reading this week, a man, many here might not know, his name is Gerald Healy. And in 1945, he wrote a play looking back on the Irish uh, potato famine called The Black Stranger. And the scene takes place in Ireland in the mid-19th century in the the terrible days of famine. Um, And for want of something better to do and for some lack of other solution, the government had sent men digging all throughout the land, digging roads to no purpose and to no destination. And in the story, this man named Michael, he finds out about this, and he comes home one day, and and with poignant wonder, he looks to his father, and he says, they're making roads that lead to nowhere. And I wish I could say that with a good Irish accent, but I'm not going to attempt. And I'm not sure if you've woken up one day, and you felt, "How, how on earth did I get to where I am today? You feel confused maybe about your life, your career, relationships maybe lost in your marriage maybe someone made a promise to you at one point that felt so real to you that you clung to but now is just yesterday's news it is totally dissipated maybe as a christian i know i've often felt this way that you can't help but feel that the more that you pray for a specific situation the darker the situation seems to become you tirelessly pray for a loved one but nothing seems to change Maybe you can echo these words this morning on your journey of faith, wherever you are, that the roads that you are making lead to nowhere. And what we have here in this genealogy is a wonderful summation of history that the people of Israel, I believe, also would have been acquainted with this reality of, Lord, where are we going? Where are you, Lord? As a small, backwater, Middle Eastern nation, their history If you've read anything through the Psalms or anything through the Old Testament, was anything but tidy. Anything but it. People were often left in chaos, confusion, the odds stacked against them. Read time and time again that their backs were against the wall thinking, Lord, what are we to do here? And as we see in this, at the end of our passage, that it actually breaks nicely our passage into three main parts. From Abraham to David, from David to the Babylonian captivity, and from the captivity to Christ. And I want you to think about this for a second, about a summary of this, of the promise that was actually made to Abraham. Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's quite a promise. You look out at the stars, that people actually outnumber these stars one day. And what was Abraham's response? 
At one point, they took things into their own hands, didn't they? It's hard to believe, Lord, are you serious in our age that this promise is actually going to be made true to me? Think about David, another person mentioned in this passage, the son of David, that your kingdom and throne will last forever, really? That through me? What does this mean, God? Didn't David go to the grave? Think about the trials, the chaos, probably the disillusionment in David's life. God, are you sure? Are you going to come through on this promise? Thinking more broadly, the Israelite people in captivity sent away from Israel with nothing. Thinking maybe God has abandoned us, that God has left me alone, that we've gone too far now. This, this God, will not, he will not return to us. He will not call us back to himself. And even leading up to this passage, in years of silence, the Israelites, I'm sure, were discouraged They looked around, didn't see how God would fulfill his promises being under the Roman rule and charge. But here's what I want you to hear this morning. We cannot be deceived because right when it looked like God was not accomplishing his purposes, right in the middle of it, God was precisely at work through the obscurity, through the lack of belief. He was doing his greatest work in the most unlikely of circumstances that There was no unreliability to the promises of God all throughout Scripture. All throughout Scripture, there was this interweaving story, this unseen story behind the story where God was at work despite the sinfulness of people, despite the failure of Israel to bring about His purpose and His glory. And I look back at that and I think, wow, that is the providence of God. That is His sovereign grace that it wasn't because of righteous people that he brought forth these promises. It was actually despite that. It was despite the lack of faithfulness of the people. And we see that this kingdom continued to move forward, that it could not be thwarted. One of my favorite movies uh, that I I watched uh, many, many times through high school, I actually haven't seen in a while, was this movie called Hoosiers, right? And I know the end of the story. I know that there's this small-town Indiana basketball team who really just not on the map, and this coach comes through to bring this, this redemptive narrative to this team, and finally they win a state championship. It's a great end of the story. They win in the end. Hopefully that movie was in 1986, so if you're, if you're thinking, you just spoiled the movie for me, well, I'm, I'm sorry to do that. But even still, when I watch the movie, I see just the, the failures throughout the team, I see, I, I get so drawn into it and thinking, man, are they, are they actually going to pull this off? And I've seen it many times. I know that they're going to win, but I get so drawn in in just the narratives of these people and thinking, there's no way they're going to pull it off again. This team, what, what is going on here? There's, there's people who end up leaving the team, and there's kind of this whole narrative that's built up to think, these guys are the underdogs. There's no way it's going to happen. And if I could make a parallel here for the Christian, and as we look at this whole narrative of God's story, We know the end of the story. We know that God's promises are true in Christ. We know that God has been faithful then and he will be faithful now, but sometimes in the midst of it, we lose sight of that. And I want to encourage us as we step back today to think that God is interweaving not just the story of Israel, but even looking forward into your life, that God has a plan, that God has a purpose, that God is interweaving a story to the end of his glory, even in the midst of the chaos, the confusion, the disillusionment, and we respond 
in great faith and saying that this is the God who is gracious. This is the God whose kingdom will never be thwarted. Uh, D.A. Carson, just in, in, in one line, he says it so beautifully that God's providence cannot be deceived or outmaneuvered. That his purposes come true. And so we see that all of the promises are roads that culminate in Jesus and are heading somewhere. We are heading somewhere. But I want to stop there. We see, all, we see a kingdom that cannot be thwarted. But I also want to look through this passage and see a king who identifies with our brokenness. For many of you who know uh, king Herod, uh, the King Herod that was ruler over Jesus' birth, and it was known of him historically that he was, he was a real proud man. A lot of people actually assume that he wasn't fully Jewish, that he came from an Edomite line. But in his, in his pride, in him not wanting to, uh, to be perceived as weak, that he actually had many people expunged from his family line that brought dishonor to his name. And actually, we see, as, as I've read a little bit on this, that there's many kings and rulers of old who actually fabricate, manipulate their family line to show that, that great wealth and honor and prestige came from this line, that there was no weakness within it. One of the things I, I even thinking to myself, wouldn't necessarily compare myself to King Herod at all, but when I think about my family line, often when people ask about my family, they ask about where I come from, I'm really quick to share that I have an uncle uh, who's a doctor. He's done really well for himself. Uh, I have a cousin of mine, at least years ago, he used to play professional soccer um, in the States. And it's really easy for me to share these stories of like, hey, these are the successful people in my family that I want to associate myself with. And you can fill in the blanks too as people are, hey, tell me about your family. It's very rare for us where we actually want to share stories of shame or people in our family where... Maybe things haven't worked out the best. Maybe areas that we feel that this person has been a failure in my family. And so, Lord knows, I'm not going to speak about that person. Or, or maybe that's towards us as well. But we don't find this in the resume of Christ here. We don't find this in Jesus' lineage. In fact, we find the most unlikely, broken, moral failures included in the genealogy of, of Christ here. Which is a wonderful pointer to that this dawn of this new age is, is a new king, a king who is unlike any other king. A few of the things that we see here that would have been totally rare, something that would not have been included in a genealogy then, is that there are women included in this genealogy. And you're thinking 2018, oh boy, he's going to start talking about this stuff. But in a patriarchal culture, this is something that would have been so foreign. You wouldn't have names like Tamar or Rahab, or Ruth, Uriah's wife Bathsheba, who's not even mentioned in this, and finally Mary, these are names that you often wouldn't find in the line of the genealogy of a king. And furthermore, these are names that aren't just respectful women. We have, we have Tamar, who tricked her father into sleeping with her. In an act that is, we look at it today and think that this is totally immoral. Rahab, who is a prostitute, from, Jer from Jericho, who is a Gentile. We have Ruth, a Moabite, not exactly esteemed from the nicest family line here. All of these women we look at and think that these are less than respectful 
In fact, nobody would want to mention them in their family line, and yet they're mentioned in this wonderful line of Christ. Can you see the, the people who are included in Jesus' family tree? And then we move on to David, and it says, as, as we read down, that David and the wife of Uriah, and I wonder why Matthew didn't include the name Bathsheba, and part of me, and maybe this is speculation, is thinking about Matthew's causing us to remember the story. Do you remember the story where David betrayed one of his best friends, slept with his wife, and had him killed to cover up? This line is filled with moral outsiders, with people who didn't get it right. People who, in my opinion, it's the, to name these people in Jesus' family tree, this is incredible. It's messed up but it's a triumph of grace. And I hope you're seeing this message this morning that if Jesus had people like this as forebearers leading up to his arrival, what would this reveal about his life and his ministry, his death and resurrection pointing forward? I think if you spend any time in Matthew, you realize that Jesus often said that I haven't come to call the righteous, but the sinner that he sat with prostitutes and tax collectors and people that would be looked upon by the nation of Israel and saying, why is this king associating himself with these people? But the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the Christian story is that Jesus came for the unclean, the unwelcome, the wicked, the lost. He didn't come to crown the model success and the social progress of the cultural elites. He loved them, sure, but he came for the pagan, for the prostitute, for the outsider, for the one who was excluded from society, the one that people looked down upon and said, surely God would not be for people like this. And this is good news because we as well can count ourselves among these names as people who have failed, people who have fallen short of God's glory, people who might be moral outsiders. Maybe you feel eth ethnically outside. Maybe in your family you've been one who's been pushed to the fringes of, of someone who has just never been accepted. And the heart of the Christian message is that all of us, messed up, broken, guilty people, could very well belong to this rogue gallery. And this is the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus embraced the condemnation that all of these could have deserved, the rejection that I deserve, that they deserved at the cross, and he gave himself that we might be forgiven, that we might be included into his family. Do you see that? And to me, this is the beauty and the wonder of the Christmas story, is that we can see a God who went outside of the camp, he went outside of Israel, that he went outside in the cold so that we could be brought into the warmth and goodness of God's family, adopted through Christ into his family. If these people included in the genealogy, filled with failure, filled with making mistakes, not seeing the promises in God, of God, and yet God owns them, inspired through Matthew that this is the line that he came from, this is great hope for us today. This is great hope for us in the gospel that Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. How does that change the way that you live when you know that maybe Christmas time you think, I absolutely hate being with my family. It's the hardest thing in the world. We don't get along. I feel estranged. Maybe I haven't seen them in 
so long that I, I just, family is one of the hardest things in the world for me. And yet Jesus is saying here that there is room in his family for you. Come to him today. See this king. See what this, what this genealogy is pointing towards of this king that as we receive him, that he includes us into his family. And the beauty is whether you are Abraham or King David or a prostitute in Jesus Christ, we sit down as equals at the table. That is the beautiful inclusion of the gospel. Princes and pagans that we eat together at the table. That is the common denominator of the Christian story. And Paul, Paul pronounces this well in Galatians 3.28 and 29. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise. Isn't this a great hope that we have? That God doesn't write you off because how far you've gone from him? Beautiful news of Jesus clearing the playing field that the excluded would become included. This dawn of this new age points to a king who is not ashamed to call you brother, but actually I can identify in your brokenness. And I actually want to say not just identify and sympathize, but went as far to give us a way that we can be included in this family as we receive him. So we see a kingdom that continues on, that cannot be thwarted. We see a king who identifies in our brokenness, in our sin. And lastly this morning, I want to talk about a king through whom the whole world would be blessed. One of the significance of this family line here in, in verse uh, right at the beginning, that Jesus being the son of David, the son of Abraham, is that he would be the one who would come, who would come to fulfill these promises. That as God promised to Abraham that all nations of the earth would be blessed, it seemed unlikely, as I had said in our first point, that Christ comes and he fulfills that. And as I read in the last verse, that all those who accept Christ into their life, all those who follow Jesus, all those who look to this promise can truly become children of Abraham. And I think back in this day that the Jews missed this. And I'm not being hard on the Jews because it, part of me thinks if I lived in that day, maybe I would have missed that as well. To become insular, to think that God is for us, that God is for the nation of Israel. But all along, that God's desire, as you read, it's riddled through the Old Testament that God had a desire to save the entire world, that God was not just for the Jew, but that his light would go out to the Gentiles, that all would be brought in. See that through the Davidic covenant, that, this, that the government that would rest upon Jesus' shoulder will not end, that the world would be blessed, and Christ came as the true insider to fulfill this. And one of the things I want to point our attention to today is that it's so easy to think that the world will be blessed if maybe our government got it together or different social structures, economy, maybe even you know, we were more moral and better neighbors, that the world would be blessed through this. And I just want to point us back to this reality that the true blessing of the world, true redemption and restoration truly comes from Jesus Christ. That He's the one who brings that hope into our world. This history started in ancient Israel, but the goal was to go to the ends of the earth, that all people who received Jesus would be
the children of Abraham. And I think it's, I don't think it's by mistake that it starts with the genealogy in Matthew, but if you read to the very end of Matthew 28, the message is to go, to go into all the world, to share this good news of Jesus, that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to you and that Christ will be with us even to the end of the age. Go out from here to share the inclusion of this, of this kingdom in Jesus, how he is the true hope. And what a beautiful picture it is when this gospel goes forward and breaks the barrier lines and offers this gift. I read, uh, I read a story this past week. Maybe a few of you guys have read this. It was in the paper. Uh, but there's a man uh, who was part of a move-in team in Hamilton. And they, they had moved into a lower-income neighborhood and just knocking on doors. I don't know the exact story. But he ended up, he encountered a man there uh, who was regularly going through dialysis, uh, health, health crisis, and he befriended this man. Uh, this guy here is a Christian. This other guy is a Muslim man, considerably older, probably 25 years older. And because of the love and this idea that I'm trying to draw out here that the gospel is for all, the gospel is for all nations, he began just to have coffee with this man. He began to share tea with him. They, they both had a background in medicine. And what ended up happening in the story, to, to bring the, sh- the story full circle, is that this man needed a new kidney. And this younger man here, this, this Christian man who had been reaching out in the community, decided to step in and actually offer this man a new kidney, to donate his kidney to this man who was regularly on dialysis. And I think about it, we, it's so easy to talk about we love our neighbor, that we want the gospel to go forth. But as I read that, tears came to my eyes and I was so convicted because it's like this is, this is what it means to follow Christ. This is what it means to love our neighbor is that it wouldn't just be in word but that we would embody this truth of what the king has done with our lives to such a degree that maybe we'd give a kidney. That we would lay down our lives to such a degree, to, to such a degree that we could say we love you. No matter what your background, maybe you're an ethnic outsider, maybe you're someone who's not accepted in society, but, but I will go to that length to show the love of Christ to you. I think this is what King Jesus did even more in laying down his life for us and giving us all undeserving, unworthy. And yet when we look to that, we think, wow, what a king. What an awesome king who loved us and gave himself for us. And so I want to ask, how do we respond this morning? Maybe as, as you learn of a, a kingdom that can't be thwarted, that that would be encouragement to you that where you are, feeling stuck, feeling like you're in exile, and actually for the Christian, it's like, Lord, we're just passing through here. But to know that God's kingdom is sure and uncertain and that he is working in your life, even in the bad and the ugly, what you cannot perceive, that God is weaving a wonderful story together. Maybe the application of just seeing that God identifies with you this morning. That God loves you. That God, that through the shame and failure and different things that you're experiencing in your life, I encourage you to look to Jesus. The one who died in your place. The one who loves you. The one who is calling you this morning, even as we start our service, to to come to him. That he's calling you to be in this family. Come in faith. And lastly, to see that this is way beyond us, that this kingdom is to go to the ends of the earth, to your neighbors, 
to ones who think differently, to the ones who maybe you've written off that have said they are too far from God. May we be like that man in Hamilton. We can lay down our lives and sacrifice because we know that God is the one who ultimately holds our lives and he loves us. I want to end this morning with this. It's actually a hymn that maybe some of you guys know by Frederick Faber. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. And just a few of the words that he writes in this hymn, he was a, an Anglican priest who became Catholic. Um, sorry to hear that. No, I'm, I'm teasing. But he says this in this, uh, in this wonderful hymn. He says that there is a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. It goes down in the next verse. For the love of God is broader than the measures of the mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. If our, love but more, if our love were but more faithful, we would gladly trust God's word, and our lives reflect thanksgiving for the goodness of the Lord. My prayer this morning is that we would just get a little more of a glimpse of God's mercy, his love, the wideness of it that we see through this genealogy, the inclusiveness of it, and that we would come to him in awe and wonder and saying, Jesus this new dawn that we learn about in this genealogy, surely it points to all of these things and more of what we talked about this morning. Let's pray together today. Uh, Father, I'm not sure where we all are today. I know December is a month where, where many feel burnt out, tired. Uh, maybe a lot of these words, just in chaos and in confusion, that it's just hard to see you. But I pray today, as we read through these generations, that we would see this man, Jesus, who was born thousands of years ago, who is called Christ, and that we would worship him. And in that, we would find rest. We would see that you are at work in our lives far more than we could imagine. That would lead us in awe and wonder to your name, Lord. Pray as we respond in song uh, that, this, that you just give us faith in our hearts to see you for who you truly are today. In Jesus' name, amen.